How are you doing, Lior? I'm good. How are you? Good. Nice to see you. It's good to see you as well. I'm glad we could do this. Dave, I noticed that the beard is back. Yes, it's, exactly. I, I feel like it's shorter when the, you come to the U.S. and then it, you allow it to go back when you're home. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> My guest today is Lior Ip from the Roddenberry Foundation. The Roddenberry Foundation espouses the belief of the Star Trek creator, Gene Roddenberry. Gene Roddenberry believed that the human potential is remarkable and would lead us to a better, fairer world, a world with no hunger, poverty, prejudice, or greed. The Global Plus One Fund follows these principles and it enables small organizations across the world to challenge the status quo and create a brighter future. What are we generally chatting about today? Pursuit of happiness, Lior. <laughs> Great. No, I'm down for whatever you guys want to chat about. Great. Well, thank you, Lior, for joining us. I know it's Sunday evening, your time in Los Angeles. It's a real pleasure to have you as a guest on this podcast. We, I guess, met, if my memory serves correct, about a year and a half ago. I think it was sort of April and May time. We started attending different Zoom meetings around the time the Delta wave was hitting India and globally, and conversations just revolved around communities that were hit the hardest and how we can sort of support those communities that are typically not seen with sort of donor networks and are not really heard of traditionally in conferences. And I guess in our conversations, we learned at, at Dasra that you had launched something called why don't you actually speak about it? That would be amazing if you can talk a little bit about what you all did during the COVID time and how that's sort of progressed, you know, even post or whatever the time we live in right now. Sure. Yeah, no, I'm excited to be here and thank you for having me. And I, I think we bonded in sort of breakout sessions on different Zoom calls around the opportunity that the pandemic offered in catalyzing or galvanizing the philanthropic sector to do things differently and the necessity for it and that the business as usual approach from the philanthropic side wasn't going to meet the need that the pandemic was that obviously created particularly in vulnerable and last mile communities so it was an opportunity to introduce the plus one global fund which the ronbury foundation launched in about may of 2020 as a response to the pandemic the origin story or the genesis of this was that we, like most foundations at the time, wanted to get money into people's hands as efficiently and as strategically and as quickly as possible, particularly those working with communities that were hardest hit. I think we also recognized that the last thing anyone needed or wanted was another grant program that was going to take them away from the actual work that they were doing on the ground. And so the tension that we felt was, how do we do this in a way that allows us to do this strategically, but doesn't add another burden, already overworked social entrepreneurs and grassroots organizations on the ground. And we landed on this idea of leveraging network, existing networks of organizations that have done the due diligence and the heavy lifting and have identified high impact social entrepreneurs in the global South. And we simply said, well, why not ask them? Why not ask the folks who are already on the ground who they thought was doing 
impactful work addressing the pandemic. And so we created this nomination-based framework to essentially find and identify individuals who were working in communities that we wouldn't be able to source otherwise. And we launched this program uh, in May or June of 2020, essentially working with globally recognized organizations like Ashoka, Acumen, Global Fund for Women, eventually DASRA, and asked their network to identify individuals who are doing the COVID-related work, eventually 45 countries around the world. And we realized that this framework worked really well. It just resonated with the folks who were being asked to make nominations. The people who were nominated loved the idea that they didn't have to apply for a grant. Uh, The grant was very quick and sort of streamlined, and they were able to essentially apply through this mechanism without doing a lot of work for it. And we were able to fund folks within about 10 weeks. Um, And part of the process allowed us to also compensate the people who were making nominations so that uh, everyone found value in this process. And so we did this for about two years, specifically addressing COVID and did so in countries around the world in multiple rounds of 10 to 12 weeks long. And it turned out to just deeply resonate with everyone that we worked with. And so we've now evolved the program significantly since then, but it allowed us to apply a lot of the values that I think we've always had as a foundation that we wanted to transfer to grant-making programs, but really hadn't been able to. And through Plus One, we're really able to envision a different way of doing things through philanthropy that I think we desperately thought was needed in this ecosystem in which we work. And I mean, I think just in this time of severe pain and just chaos, the fact that you were able to make grants in 10 weeks and 45 different countries How did you convince funders on this radical new way of supporting organizations, which limit the amount of bureaucracy an NGO needs to put? And, you know, in applying for that grant process, like you spoke about, I mean, how did you convince funders that this is even doable? And what were some of the questions, I guess, apprehensions they had to go down this path? I think there was a recognition and continues to be a recognition amongst some funders that there needs to be a different way of doing philanthropy and practicing philanthropy. And I think that we did get lucky in that there were foundations out there looking for different opportunities, different uh, models of grant making that allowed them to uh, do things in a way I think that was quite different from what has existed traditionally in the philanthropic space. And what what I mean by that is operating with a greater sense of urgency, operating with more transparency employing trust-based practices, um, making grantee-centric mechanisms, so things like shorter applications, quicker turnaround, those kinds of things. I think that there are funders out there who are actively seeking that. There's certainly not enough of them, but I think that we reached a point where we had proven the model over about a year and a half of doing this around the world. And when we started to create an opportunity for other funders to join us in this process, there was a deep interest in doing this. And we also... I think we're met with a lot of resistance, which shouldn't be a surprise. I think the philanthropic space is incredibly risk averse, but there were funders out there who recognized that there was both a need post-COVID or whatever we're calling it to do things in a more impactful and different way and to think about what does the ecosystem need? What do the grantees need? How do we make this more user-friendly 
and take ourselves out of the process. In other words, how do the funders, how do we take our egos out of this and stop thinking about what we want and need and start thinking about what folks on the ground need? And that's hard. I think that was hard to do and it continues to be a challenge. And I think that there is a movement um, within philanthropy, and we're certainly seeing this in a lot of different parts of the world, where funders are challenging themselves to practice philanthropy differently, to collaborate more, act with more urgency, transparency, and trust. Yeah, and for the listeners who may not be as familiar about the typical grant process, many times it takes a year or two for an organization to even get a grant with the foundation. I know we have been lucky to have philanthropists who sort of very quickly make decisions and they're shocked at the hundreds page proposals that we have to submit and really dictate to a T through a results framework, which is this ridiculous log frame that NGOs are put through to determine sort of what will happen in year five, six, and seven of a particular sector. And we have, I guess, you know, philanthropists, I guess, or individuals who are more in, let's say, the private equity space or in the investment space. And they're just like, wow, if every company on the for-profit side had to put that level of work in to get a couple of hundred thousand dollars, you know, just for-profit capital markets would be so inefficient because no one knows what's going to happen, you know, a couple of years from now. But there's so many very large respected foundations that sort of have that point of view and they want everything sort of, you know, in place. And I guess the issue with that is, uh, like we've seen with COVID, it doesn't allow these organizations to pivot as the communities they serve are dealing with issues or even disasters, which may not have been even in play a year or two or three ago when that particular proposal was built. And so the fact that y'all are trusting NGOs to to recommend other organizations, which again is just very logical, but not done, because many people think if I've earned the money through various means, I then have the right and the knowledge to decide where it goes, even though I've never lived in these communities and don't know them. But then also it's this whole view that if you only write X number of pages in a results framework, that determines whether you're going to do good work versus just the past track record that all of the organizations you've supported through this process have had, but maybe they haven't been recognized in a results framework of sorts. And so y'all, I think, really changed that mindset and have brought so many donors along. What was your history, I guess? How did you get into the sector? Well, I've been on the nonprofit in the nonprofit sector my entire career. And I spent many years on working on the education in vulnerable communities and thought that I would continue to do that. I worked with an organization called Ashoka for many, many years, which in many ways was very reflective of my experiences there with working with social entrepreneurs around the world and seeing what a network of social entrepreneurs looked like really did inform the Plus One Global Fund in a lot of different ways. And then after that, after Ashoka, I ran an organization called Breakthrough Collaborative in the Bay Area and got recruited to run the Ronbury Foundation and didn't never thought about being a funder. I always thought that the real work was being done by the NGOs and nonprofits and grassroots organizations, which I still do believe. I mean, that's where the real work is being done. And I think that also the distance that we have as funders from that sector speaks to all of the issues that you just talked about, right? The fact that we are so removed sitting wherever we're sitting in the US or in Europe and trying to make decisions for folks in contexts that are completely foreign to us in different countries is part of the problem. And so is the power dynamic that exists between funders and the nonprofit sector. But I got here just being in the nonprofit space, got recruited to join the Roddenberry Foundation. And fortunately, 
we have a North Star in the work that we do, which is Gene Roddenberry, who was the creator of Star Trek, passed away about 20 years ago, but was an incredibly progressive individual in the 1960s when he created the show Star Trek and imbued it with these incredible values around equity and diversity, inclusivity, justice. That's what we try to practice every day at the foundation. When you think about those attributes or that philosophy, you know, what it looks like vis-a-vis running grant programs, if you're not thinking about how to be as inclusive as you can be and support organizations or individuals who are typically overlooked in countries that are typically underfunded, if you're not thinking about ideas around equity and what does it look like to have an equitable or a trust-based funding program, then for us, at least, it would mean that we were we weren't paying tribute to the the origin of the foundation and kind of the underpinning philosophy. It's absolutely amazing. I mean, you have such a, the family clearly has such a fan following. And while that show dealt with multiple topics, which are far ahead of its time, to see, I guess, some of that being inculcated, like you said, into philanthropy right now. And, and initially, similar to your sort of past experience with Ashoka, we've worked with multiple NGOs on the ground. And so it was easy to sort of deploy capital to groups that we knew, many of them Ashoka fellows or have been recognized through other platforms. But after we gave sort of our first about 60 grants out in the tune of about $5 million, and in a couple of weeks, we were like, okay, well, now, how do we get to other groups that we have not funded before? And in this time of a crisis, we didn't want to, like you only said, waste their time. And so for us, it was such a great opportunity to partner with a group based out of Los Angeles to do sort of more equitable grant making in India. And through your processes and support, we were able to, you know, grant out to 60 organizations, you know, 30 that received these grants, and then another 30 that were receiving sort of funding for nominating their own peers for that support. And, and I think for us, we realized that this was just a great way of us tapping into networks that existed and that still exist and really having them be the recommenders. And that was really the premise of the Rebuild India Fund for us. And so I think, you know, just partnering with you all, learning that process and taking it sort of to scale in the Indian environment has been just so fulfilling. And thank you for giving us that sort of training and that ability to take these risks. It really, really means a lot. I think what opened our eyes through our work together was that, you know, funders can, in fact, work together and collaborate and be successful with it, put their egos aside and learn from each other in these processes. And I think that it was a wonderful experience. And it it certainly allowed us to bring on other funders and the work that we've been doing in, in other parts of the world in around other issue areas. And the for us, I think every time we work with another funder, we're that much more optimistic that philanthropy can change. Like I was saying earlier, smaller organizations are typically not supported for whatever reason. And these are the ones that clearly, just like in the for-profit world, it's SMEs that sort of drive the economy, not just the large fortune 400 or whatever companies that exist. And more importantly, it's these groups, many of them that then if given the right support can grow in scale. And so through sort of your time with Ashoka, your time in working in education, your time with Roddenberry, I guess, what are some of the areas you've seen the smaller organization sort of suffers with and and where are shifts that philanthropists can make to make their journeys a little easier? Well, I think we always say internally, at least the small is beautiful, that there are this amazing work being done 
by smaller organizations that are run by proximal leaders who have acute instincts and insight into the issues that no one else would be able to match. The reality is that 90%, 95% of the nonprofits in the world, all these smaller folks, right? The folks who are getting the 10, 15, $20 million are really tiny percentage of the organizations that are trying to work on social change. And so I think for us, at least at Roddenberry, we see the importance of supporting these smaller organizations, partly because they're the ones who are driving change at a local level. They are best able to adapt to issues like the pandemic. There's a local context and relationship community orientation that allows them to be successful in ways that large organizations wouldn't be. Yeah, we're big believers in small organizations supporting them, and not just individual organizations. Part of the work that we've been doing with Plus One is thinking about what does it look like to support networks of small organizations? And so I think there's also a missed opportunity in philanthropy, certainly in the past, maybe this will change looking moving ahead, but what does it look like to support multiple small organizations, either in the same country, same region, or working on the same issue area, and thinking about what is their capacity as a group, and what does collective impact look like, and what are the ways in which we can intervene as philanthropists beyond just writing a check? I think that becomes really interesting, and it's, it's where we've been focusing some of our efforts. Love to hear a little bit about why this sort of creation of networks and ongoing sort of capacity building support, in addition to unrestricted capital, is important. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just to pick up on a point that you were talking about earlier, I think, you know, someone has to take a risk on these organizations, right? It's so easy. It's a lot easier to fund a million dollar organization or a $10 million organization than a $50,000 organization, right? And to your point, they're less likely to have a really cool website. They're not going to be able to talk to the funders, but someone has to support them because that is the engine for growth in the social change space. There are far more of those organizations than any other kind. And we you know, they have that local expertise and context that we need to be supporting. Someone has to take a risk on them. And I don't think it's that risky, right? I really don't. I think that it's a misnomer to think of an organization that is that small, who doesn't have a cool website, as thinking of them as necessarily being riskier than someone else. But from, I think, from the Western perspective, it is riskier, right? And so I think we need to disabuse ourselves as funders and start taking those risks because one, I don't think that we have that much to lose. If we're actively interested in social change, at least the kind that we speak to speak about, we need to start thinking about ways that we we operate differently. And part of that is recognizing our risk aversion as funders kind of at large. To your question around where we're kind of headed. Actually, Lior, I want to speak a little bit about this risk because I feel it's a term at least that's thrown around a lot in this space. And, you know, I hear it again from givers all the time, but I think just even unpacking that risk, like what is the risk, for example, to fund an organization focusing on domestic violence where the founder of the organization herself is a victim of an acid attack? Like what is the risk in that investment? And I ask this because many people, like you said, feel it's risky. But I want to unpack that a little because I feel like we use this term risk sort of in a bullshit manner when in the for-profit world, again, we take risks all the time and let random people who have low integrity run large multi-billion dollar companies and that's not considered a risk. But when you're giving $20,000 a year to a community-based organization who may not have the same education pedigree as you do, you call it a risk. Yeah, it's a great question. I think there's a number of ways to sort of unpack this. Where I would go to is this idea of, to me, I think it's just a deficit of trust. I think at the end of the day, funders 
fundamentally do not trust the people they're giving money to. If we did, we wouldn't ask for, you know, 25 page applications and 50 page reports and site visits and all the other nonsense that we all engage in, right? If you trusted the folks that you were willing to support and or at least thought you wanted to support, then you would do away with all the bullshit and and recognize the individuals who are leading these organizations, their unique perspective coming from these communities and give them unrestricted funds to do what they do. The, the only reason I think that people give restricted funding, program-related funding is because they don't trust them. They fundamentally don't trust them. They think that they're going to use the money for, I don't know what they think they're going to do, but I think that a lot of this is a function of white privilege, lack of trust, the power dynamic inherent between funders and grantees, uh, which obviously skews completely towards the funders. And the system in which we're all operating in, which is that, you know, grantees are forced to essentially beg for the dollars that they need or rupees or whatever it is to do the work that they're doing. And funders sort of think of it as a privilege or a, I, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is, but I think that is the to me, that is the root of the problem. And then and then the other piece is just a lack of understanding. I think funders who have never experienced, you know, going to living in the global south just don't understand the context. And so they are so divorced and removed from the issues that they purport to care about that they apply a lens that isn't realistic or even necessary for their funding practices. So you end up with the kind of bullshit that we have in philanthropy. And it doesn't work. No, exactly. And I think the trust is the critical piece of this, right? And the same thing happens in the global south, i.e. they're, you know, philanthropists here in Mumbai who have never gone to Dharavi, one of the largest slums of the world. And because you've never been there, you don't realize again, there could be two days a week that you don't get water. I mean, they had everything else in place. And so they feel like, yes, education has enabled them to do A, B, or C, but they forget that they had all of these other things in place. And the only reason I bring it up is because when you don't have a lot of those things in place, when you don't have access to a toilet, or you do have to stay home to take care of a sibling, or if you're an adolescent girl, you know, having your period, you can't go to school for a variety of reasons. And so all of a sudden, when you realize what the communities are going through, you see, I guess, your metrics of what success looks like of what you or your children do in terms of learning outcomes is very biased because everything else is taken care of. No, no, I couldn't agree more. I think the reality, for instance, with Plus One Global, if we keep running into is that the folks that we're working with in terms of capacity building, as an example, we run this multi-month workshop series with coaching, et cetera. And we always wonder why someone missed it or, or this person didn't attend the full time. When you actually have a conversation with them, you realize that like, oh, they actually haven't had electricity for two days or their internet has been down for three days. And like, we keep having to remind ourselves the folks that we're working with and supporting and funding are living vastly different lives than certainly we are sitting in Los Angeles or Silicon Valley or anywhere else. And if you can't understand that, and if you don't have empathy around that, and if you don't care to do either, then your funding practices are going to reflect that, right? And so I think this is why, just kind of going full circle, why philanthropy is so broken in so many different ways is that part of it is that the folks who are responsible for making decisions are immensely wealthy by any standard and have no idea what is actually happening in the quote unquote real world as it applies to the folks that they're supporting the issues they care about. And so they apply a lens and a framework that 
that doesn't work and isn't isn't optimized for anyone. It's honestly a lose-lose. The funders oftentimes are frustrated. They feel like the issues aren't getting solved. The folks responsible for doing the work aren't doing it. And certainly we know that the, in the nonprofit side, you know, the funding space never works for the, the folks who are trying to raise funds in so many different ways. And so if you have a system in which no one is particularly happy and the issues themselves aren't being solved, then we have to at some point say, guys, it's not working. It's a source of constant frustration. It's not just the nonprofits and the grant seekers who I know are frustrated. I think a lot of us are just as frustrated as there. And again, I think there's a real fear. Like I was saying earlier, I mean, a lot of the NGOs that are very established now that have done phenomenal work, you can't question at all what they have done and what they plan on doing, are afraid to speak about these things because they think they will offend a certain funder. This whole sort of power dynamic, like how can we change it? And many times they're afraid that if they speak out against sort of the ineffectiveness of funders, that the funding will just be curtailed completely. And all of a sudden they just, you know, what's at risk is again, the communities they serve and they feel at times that they don't want to put their own personal egos to test when it's actually not their personal egos that is being tested here. It's just a general mistrust and this feeling of like, if I have succeeded in a particular business venture, again, meant most of the time because of the privilege that I've had is why I succeeded (laughs) and luck and timing, of course. But most people don't think that, but then there's just this view that I can succeed in everything and I can drive everything. And so I guess, what are some of the things you've seen that can break this barrier down. Uh, yeah, yeah. if we had an answer to that, I think we might be able to solve a lot of the problems in the space. I mean, I, I think what's interesting about what you were saying around the inability of the NGO folks to say what they really feel really speaks to the power dynamic in the space, right? And how inequitable it is. My experience, and I'm curious to know if this has been your experience, is that you know, all of the stuff that we're talking about is would not come as a surprise to anyone in philanthropy, e- even at the bigger foundations. I think that they all get this and they see it, which begs the question, why isn't it changing? And in my experience, I can't think of almost all the program officers, all the folks who are, are really doing the heavy lifting at these bigger foundations, orbit funders as well, get it and would love to see things different. The real problem lies, if we're going to, let's just call it what it is, is the leadership and at the board level, right? This has been my experience. And I think a lot of folks would probably, um, this would resonate with them, is that you have foundation boards who are even further removed from the folks who are leading the foundations and the folks who are working at the foundations. They tend to be overwhelmingly white and male and incredibly wealthy. Otherwise, they wouldn't be on a board of a foundation. And, And that comes with a lot of privilege and a lot of myopic thinking and not a great inclination to challenge themselves to do this differently. A lot of them made a lot of money in the business world, and so they think that they can apply whatever business acumen they have to the philanthropic space, which I think we can all sort of see doesn't really work particularly well um, in a lot of different ways. And you can't just you can't just take whatever you learned or however well you did at Silicon Valley and sort of think that you can suddenly know what a community in South Sudan needs. And and we keep seeing this all the time, right? I mean, I'm sure you talk to other funders who you know, want to do site visits and sort of provide capacity building with absolutely no knowledge or understanding of the communities that they're working with. So a lot of this is to say that if there was a lever for change, I think it would be, and I don't know how to do this, I'm not sure anyone does, but if we could figure out how to change the leadership and the boards with at the foundation level, I think the ways in which we practice funding would change perhaps overnight. 
I think it would happen pretty quickly. I'm not sure exactly how to do that. And I think that there's, I think this is where the smaller foundations that are more adaptable, more flexible, run by different types of individuals might have an opportunity to exert an influence on the broader sector. That's certainly at least what we're hoping and where we're, we're putting our bet. I mean, completely agree. And even, for example, in the work that we're doing with Rebuild India Fund, we have a five-member investment committee, which are all NGO leaders. These are people who know the space well. They've been operating from day one. And we've also honestly had to have some conversations with some of our board members who come primarily from the business sector to talk about why an NGO-led investment committee who have full veto rights is important versus a traditional investment committee that you would see in a private equity house where, you know, typically they, at least the conversations we've had to have, is that typically they're people in the industry, for example, in the for-profit world, at least, that would be advisors, but they would never be the decision makers. They would advise, they would tell you, but the decision makers always sits with who is giving the money. And for us to say, actually, that's not going to happen here. And we both know Maya Patel quite well and the Thursadia Foundation, and they were the ones who've been uh, anchor funders of this particular initiative who said from day one, they don't want to make decisions on which NGOs to fund because they're not on the ground here. And I guess just you know, because you've run this now in multiple countries, what have been some of the learnings, I guess, through sort of this network approach? Uh, there's a lot of them. I think that the first one that comes to mind is this, if I can contextualize it in terms of what we've been talking about. I think one of the things that we do really badly in philanthropy is we pit organizations against each other, right? We create the zero-sum game where it's completely competitive. Everyone's competing against each other for the same dollars. And I think what we've been able to see with the Plus One Global Fund now over three years is that given the opportunity to sort of pay it forward and to nominate your peers to receive funding, that overwhelmingly people do it and do it really gladly. And they will nominate their peers, some of whom they know really well and some of whom they don't. That, I think just that alone, it's so simple. It just shows how we are, as philanthropists, are contributing to the dysfunction in this ecosystem and the ways in which if we get ourselves out of it and place the impact or the communities that we're trying to, to serve ahead of our own interests, they show us. They're great guides for us what this might look like. So imagine a philanthropic ecosystem in which everyone isn't competing against each other, right? Where we're not always sort of saying, you know, there are going to be five grants or five winners or whatever it is that we do. And instead, think about what the communities need and how we might support them. So that's the first thing that comes to mind is that, you know, one of the things we didn't know is, would anyone nominate anyone else? Like, we didn't know if that would even be a, something that anyone would be willing to do at the beginning. And now we've seen that folks are willing to do it in, in spades. In fact, at the beginning of Plus One, we, we asked someone to make one nomination. And what we heard overwhelmingly for the first six months is that we want to make more, give us more opportunities. And so we changed the model so that people can now make up to three nominations. So we're always learning and we created a mechanism that allows us to change the way in which we work from round to round or from issue to issue or from region to region so that we can accommodate the realities of what the communities are experiencing and what their needs are. I think what we've also realized is that the capacity building, as an example, you have a great insight into this. It's really hard to do if you're not on the ground working and building relationships with folks and, and creating opportunities and enabling environment for people to work together, to share and to learn. The other sort of big learning for us is that small organizations, apropos of what we were speaking about earlier, 
they, they can actually have huge impact in the thousands of lives. They really can. And the beauty is that they don't need a lot of funding either. And so the, you can make small catalytic grants and have a lot of impact, support these organizations in meaningful ways. You don't have to write a million or $2 million check. I think in correlation with that is thinking about what more they need and how we can support them above and beyond writing a check. The last thing I'll say is, I think this is an important part of, of one of the, the great lessons of Plus One, is that there's unbelievable work being done by organizations that none of us have ever heard of. And the only reason we don't know them is because they don't have the social capital that other organizations have. They're not in the right countries. They didn't go to the right universities. They're not you know, part of existing networks. That doesn't mean that they're not high-impact organizations. It's incumbent on us as funders to find them. It can't be the other way around. I think one of the things that we've seen through Plus One because of the nomination framework is that someone sitting in Uganda or Cameroon or wherever it is, is far more likely to know a high-impact social entrepreneur organization than any of us sitting here in California or anywhere else. We need to trust the folks on the ground to identify and to guide us in in these ways. Otherwise, we're never going to be successful. And so my thought on this is simply that let's start to think about how we diversify our applicant pools, how we become more inclusive in our funding practices, how do we fund and go beyond the usual suspects? How do we How do we get to a place where we're comfortable being the first or second funder rather than the fifth or sixth or seventh funder? How do we risk more? Those are the things that I think we've learned or continue to learn in addition to all the mistakes we've made along the way, because we certainly have, that has really come out of the last couple of years in doing this program. It's been a really great experience for us. It's so simple, yet so pathbreaking. A lot of the sort of basics of you know, true development and philanthropy and trust and humility, I think has been there. I think it may have been hijacked by the more professionalization of the sector. And at least at Tasra, I know, unfortunately, we've played a role in that as well. And, and I think while we, you know, furtherly, for example, believe in capacity building of organizations, it never was it in detriment of others. It was more to say, How do we give exposure and perspective to community-based organizations who may not have those perspectives, but not to judge whether you're good or bad? But it's been translated, I think, in sort of the 10-second bites that we live in as, oh, well, that's good, and then this is bad. I think so, too. And I think one of the things that you mentioned made me think about the complexity in the work that's being done and the need to be comfortable with the ambiguities and the messiness of this work. And I think that this is where a lot of, I think, funders are also failing us more broadly is that they're not willing to, that they want everything to be really easy and quantifiable and impact driven. And some of this stuff is really hard to measure, but it doesn't mean that it's not being done and that positive work isn't being accomplished. And I think that the nuances from you know west to east and one even within one region and one country, and the differences between rural and urban are so vast sometimes that it does take a certain level of context and local expertise that I think these small organizations have that others don't. But more broadly, I think that the we we need to accept the the messiness of all this work that we're doing. Otherwise, I think we're going to continue to run up against the frustrations that I think a lot of folks do feel in, in looking at, you know, why we're still suffering, you know, whether it's 2 billion people who don't have access to clean water. I mean, you know, the systems have failed in these different countries and and the work that's being done is extraordinary, but it's not just being done by large organizations that are well-funded and they're not the only ones who are capable of doing this work. And uh, we need to start to diversify and think about 
how we do all of this differently, right? And how we fund it, how we measure it, how we support the folks who are involved in it, how we help them scale. If scale is the right model for them, it might not be. There's a lot of different pieces of this, but I was thinking about, as you said this, what needs to happen. And I think part of it to me is what we've seen with the funders that we've worked with is there's a an acceptance and almost a an appetite for the complexity and the ambiguity that exists in the space and being completely comfortable with that. If you don't have that, I don't see how you're going to become, you know, you're going to be a particularly successful funder. No, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think it's that messiness where honestly, as NGOs, we're so afraid to even speak about because we think, oh my gosh, if we actually talk about the complexities that these communities face, it seems they're insurmountable. Every single day, every NGO, small and large that we support, we see these sort of, you know, not just glimmers of hope, but rays of hope and individuals literally lifting themselves out of what would seem as just, you know, impossible to come out of. And they are the mentors of the community. What gives you hope, Lior, as we sort of, you know, look, it's 2022 right now. There were a lot of great sort of goals that were set up by the United Nations that every sort of country signed up for by 2030. I mean, what gives you hope, I guess, as we sort of look at whether it's the SDGs or anything else, and just how we solve for this as a sector? Well, I think what gives me hope, and this is going to be cliched, of course, but the extraordinary work that is being done by these small organizations in incredibly, incredibly challenging situations is, it blows my mind. It's amazing to me how the creativity, the ingenuity, the perseverance, the strategic thinking, and we see it all the time, every day, right? In different parts of the world, addressing all different kinds of issues. There's unbelievable, the, the human, um, to, to your point, the human spirit, it's incredibly compelling. And we get a chance, one of the great parts of the work that we do is we get a chance to see this um, and support it. I think that there does seem to be a shift within the philanthropic space to do things differently post-COVID that I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic about. I think the idea of just doing what we were doing before and kind of going back to whatever was happening in 2019, you know, is not going to cut it. And I I think the other piece of this is that there does seem to be a greater sense of willingness to collaborate and a recognition that we we live in systems, right? And I think this is what's come out of COVID is the systems that we sort of never thought about and didn't have to with privilege because we we, can't, we're, we sit in a certain place in, in the society that these systems were inherently weak and collapse in the face of this pandemic and that billions of people around the world suffered far more than they ever should have because of it. And so I think that recognizing that we live in systems and nested within systems, I think is a really positive thing, at least for the philanthropic space, and that we're starting to think about not just systems change, which I think has been around for a while, but like, what, what does it mean to shift the sector? What does it mean to think about the philanthropic ecosystem, the nonprofit ecosystem, et cetera? And, and I think there's a lot more of that going on, which I think is a really positive thing and might yield different ways of engaging these communities and supporting them in ways that are more value-laden than they have been in the past. So I think there's quite a bit to be cautiously optimistic about, <laughs> if not totally optimistic. Great. Well, thank you, Lior. This has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate you taking the time out on a Sunday night. Yeah, of course. Anytime. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate it. Find us at dusra.org forward slash NCE for more details. 
subscribe to No Cost Extension on your favorite podcast platform.